This is Jimmy Scroggins. I'm the lead pastor at Family Church in West Palm Beach, Florida. Are you tired of going to conferences, reading books, and listening to speakers who tell you how to do church when you know that you cannot do what they are recommending? You've come to the right place on our podcast. We're going to give you principles, strategies, and ideas that you can implement right now with the resources you have at your church because this is church for the rest of us. Welcome back to the Church for the Rest of Us podcast. I'm here with my co-host, Leslie Bennett, and we're excited about today's episode of the podcast. That's right. We sure are, Jimmy, because today we have an interview with Dean, Pastor Dean and Sarah of City Church in Tallahassee, Florida, about reaching the next generation with the gospel of Jesus. And I'm excited because my son's a Noel, and I love that we have people focused on reaching young men and women like him in Tallahassee, Florida. But before we get to your interview with Dean, let me ask you your perspective on reaching the next generation. Well, obviously, it's critical, it's crucial, and it's something that every pastor should be wrestling with because there are a lot of millennials and college students. It's one of the largest generations alive right now. Besides that, if we're not reaching younger people, our church is dying. So as soon as we start reaching, stop reaching young adults and teenagers and kids, our church begins to die. So it's vital for church health. It's vital for a continued witness into the future for each one of our local churches. And in just a minute, we're going to go to my conversation with the real expert, my friend Dean and Sarah. But before we do, I want to recognize the Florida Baptist Convention for being a sponsor of our Sharper Conference. In fact, they are the originators of the conference, and they come alongside Florida churches like ours and like City Church. So thank you, Florida Baptist Convention, for being right beside us. Dean, it's so great to have you on the podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, uh, how you grew up in Tallahassee, and all of that kind of stuff, and how you know God led you back so that you could start a church. Hey, thanks, Jimmy. It's great to be here. I uh, grew up in Tallahassee. My uh, parents moved here from actually South Florida, from your neck of the woods, when I was like nine years old. And so I grew up here. I went away to school because I thought it would just be a good idea for me to get away because all my friends were staying in town. So I decided I needed to get out of town. Uh, but if you'd asked me when I was really young, like older middle school, early high school, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have told you starting a church in Tallahassee was what I wanted to do. So I'm really thankful for that. That opportunity to actually do what I want to do my entire life. Wait a minute. Life. So when you were a kid and you moved, it was not many very not very many people can move north to go to Tallahassee. But anyways, that's what you did. And when you were a kid, you wanted to plant a church. After I became a believer when I was thirteen, I was raised in a very kind of cultural Christian home where we prayed before dinner and uh, I knew some of the Ten Commandments and a few Bible stories like David and Goliath. But I never was told that I needed to be born again, that I needed to actually believe the gospel, that I was a sinner that needed saving, right. and that Jesus was the only one who could do that. I'd never been told that growing up. I knew Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem and a few other facts like that. But in terms of him as Savior, I had absolutely no concept whatsoever. Uh, so when I came to know the Lord through an FCA retreat, I immediately just had this fire in me that I wanted to reach my friends. And by the time I was 14, 15 years old, I really thought the best way to do that was to be a pastor in Tallahassee one day. That's incredible. Yeah. So everything in my life from that point forward was all kind of in the context of preparing to do that. So you went to the legendary Leon High School. I did. Superstar I athlete. There you go. And then uh, what happened after that? You graduated from high school, and what did you do to begin on this uh, journey? 
I went to Liberty University because I had someone tell me if you wanted to be a pastor, you needed to go there. And I was a very <laughs> impressionable 17-year-old. And that's a, he could have said anything else. But once I heard those words, it was a coach at an FCA camp. Uh, I came home and told my dad I need to go to Liberty. And my dad said, what's that? And I didn't know either. <laughs> yep. So uh, we looked into it, and I went there and was a biblical studies major and then went on to seminary and then came home. All right, so you came home. So what did you do? You come back to Tallahassee. You've got your you got your graduate degree. You got your college degree. What happens next? I was a youth minister for a short time. I, I didn't. I thought it'd be for a lot longer, but as soon as I started doing it, after a few months, I just realized, you know, I love the kids and the opportunity to minister to them. It just wasn't really for me. And just the way the church was fine, but just the structure of the church, I felt like I was a social coordinator on a Christian cruise ship. <laughs> and that's just not what I want to do with my life. And that sounds uh, so very I was, inspiring. Yeah, I really did. I felt like I was an activities coordinator and that was sort of right. my, like a glorified babysitter. And that just wasn't what I want to do with my life. Uh, so I was going to go explore. I just kind of thought you had to be a pastor later in life. Like you couldn't be that in your 20s. You had to be older. Uh, so I was going to go explore some different things to do and then eventually start a church. And I had some friends sit me down and they said, you've talked about starting a church your entire life. What about now? And how old were you at that point? I was 25. So at 25, some friends sit you down and say, you really need to start the church. So how did you do it? Like, how did you, at 25, how in the heck did you even know what to do? Well, I didn't. And we joked that we started our church PKE, which is pre-Kevin Ezell, yeah, uh, before he was the true. president of the North American Mission Board. Uh, so I called my mentor and I said, I don't even know what to do. I don't even know the first step of how to do this. And he said, well, come on up and we'll talk about it. So I went to Atlanta. We sat down together and he arranged uh, for a meeting for me to be able to have at the North American Mission Board at, in, in the PKE era. And I'm sure they were nice folks that had good intentions, but they fired you up, didn't they? They gave me a book and prayed for me. Okay. And uh, sent me on my way. <laughs> I thought that was what was supposed <laughs> to happen. And uh, so from there, I just got some friends together. We had no sending church. So we didn't know what that meant. It, things have changed so much for the good in church planning since then. Under Kevin's leadership and organizations like Acts 29, we can even name more. Uh, but it's changed so much. But at the time, church planting was kind of viewed as if you were maybe rebellious or couldn't make it in a real church. Uh, then you go and plant a church, which right. those things are probably both kind of true of me at the time. Right. <laughs> yeah, looking <laughs> back, back. Sure. <laughs> but, so we just, we truly just started. And a couple of friends of mine I grew up with, one guy could uh, play the guitar and sing, and he had some administration skills. Uh, skills and uh, I kind of threw everything on him as a volunteer. He was a full-time engineer, and uh, he just did whatever he could to help. And then we just started. We didn't know anything else. And we reached out to some friends, and about 20 of us started meeting in my parents' living room. Uh, because their house was just bigger than mine. And after a few months of just having some Bible study and singing some songs together, we assigned jobs to people in terms of volunteers, and we started our church. All right, so now, well, at what point did you get married in all of this? I got married in between college and seminary. Okay. I was and, 23. And so Chrissy, was, wh- where is she on this? Is she thinking, man, I've married a crazy person, or is she all in, or how's she feeling mm-hmm. about that? So Chrissy was the voice that was really pushing me to do it. Okay, she's the Holy uh, Spirit. I knew I wanted to do it, but I, I was given every excuse you could think of. I have a newborn baby at the time, and I just was kind of the, the church I was at paid for my health insurance, and it right. just sounded like a really bad idea. And one time I called her and told her that the church wasn't too thrilled about me wanting to plant a church and basically told me I needed to decide or and, and never talk about it again or clean out my office. And so I called her and told her, and she said, go back in right now and tell them you're done. You're going to go play church. Holy cow. And I was like, what? And well, thankfully, by the grace of God, the pastor of that church, a man named Doug Dorch, who is a wonderful man, and I owe City Church's existence, humanly speaking, to him in a lot of ways. 
Uh, he called me back about a week later and said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to keep you on your salary and insurance benefits till the end of the year. Oh, wow. And that's how City Church, that's about seven months worth. So that was and pretty that generous was for him, especially at the time when that wasn't a really like a, a happening thing to do. He really stuck his neck out, honestly. And I really am in debt to him for life in terms of this church starting. All right. So you guys start this. I'm assuming you're starting with mostly college kids. Oh, yes. But by a mile. I think the only people, with the exception of a couple of friends that helped me out, either people were college students or had my last name. So they had to be there. Like <laughs> right. My brother and sister and my parents. Right. And that wasn't the plan at first. Like I've always thought that the college campus, if you're in a college town or even close to university, it's probably the largest mission field in your community. Uh, so we always wanted to reach the campus, but the plan was never to only have college students. They just walked in the door first. Right. So okay. I, I can see why now I was, you know, 25, 26 years old. Uh, and they're the only ones who give us the time of day. We'd have a family walk in the door. We'd be so excited, like, a family's here. And they would say things like, hey, we like the service. We enjoyed the music and the preaching, but we're just too old. Yeah. And we'd say, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not, because you can tie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we just couldn't get anything going. Children's ministry-wise, there's no one. Give, we didn't have any kids. They wouldn't give us a chance. It was my son and a couple other uh, close friends who had a kid that was under one year old as well. And that was it. We just couldn't get any traction with anyone beyond college students. Okay, so you're starting to gather college students. You're meeting in your parents' house. Where'd you go next? So we could not afford anything, and we had no sending church. The only income from the church at all was me staying on my salary. So we had no, we had nothing. Uh, so we knew we had we couldn't you know rent a place out because that would require a lease and a build out. We just couldn't do anything like that. We couldn't even go to a school. So uh, we went to a church. Uh, we drove around town. I wrote down every church name that I saw, and I called everyone and asked them one question: Do you have Sunday night activities? Uh, because I knew they obviously used their building on Sunday morning. And my hope was a church would kind of throw us a bone and let us use their place on Sunday nights. One church did not have Sunday activities. So it was called First Christian Church. It doesn't even exist anymore. And they let us use their fellowship hall on Sunday nights. We did that for three months. And I had a family friend sit down and write the church a $35,000 check so we could go to a high school auditorium in town and really officially launch the church what we wanted it to be. And so that's when you went to Leon? We went to we started at Godby High School. Oh, you started? Okay which is actually named after a former Leon High School football coach, uh, <laughs> side note. <laughs> okay. and, uh, and we went there, and we were there for a couple of years, and that was really close to FSU. So we just saw college students walk in like crazy. And the great thing about reaching college students is they'll walk in four or five deep with people. Right. And they're, they're bringing friends. So that's what helped us take off early was that our college students that were believers or who came to Christ, they were local church college students. So they were all in with the church. They weren't campus ministry kids. Not that that's anything wrong with that, but they were local church students. Okay. So they just got it right away, and they got involved and got on board and brought people, and it started growing. All right, so at what point did you switch to where, hey, we're actually reaching families? Because now you're a very family-oriented church. Oh, yeah, while well, still having a ton of students. And so that's so we always want to be that way. Again, but the plan was never just to reach students. We just couldn't get anyone to give us the time of day. And what happened was we decided to make a move out of the high school auditorium to like a storefront warehouse that the storefront also allowed us to actually do some things for children's ministry. So even though we didn't actually need to make the move in terms of space or anything like that, we made a move so we could have better facilities for children's ministry. And that worked. And yeah, we had worked and we hired a children's minister. I had um, my uncle, who I'm very close with, called me and he said, hey, I'm worried that just finances are too high. It's the last thing I want you to worry about. I want you to be able to reach people and make disciples. And I don't want funding the church to be your biggest headache. If you could do one thing, what would you do right now? And I said, hire a children's minister. And he said, okay. And he underwrote us for, for us to be able to do that. He underwrote that position. And we hired a children's minister like two weeks later from within our church. All right. And so then you moved several other times. Talk about where the church is today. 
you know, we're on our 18th location in 11 years. That's incredible. <laughs> I, don't rec- I don't recommend that. <laughs> and now we're multi-site. The church today, uh, we have a full-time facility for one of our campuses. It's a multi-generational church. Uh, we have a Sunday school classroom that has our Sunday school class. that has people in their mid-80s in the class. Wow. And we also have a vibrant college ministry that meets on Tuesday nights. Uh, at our 10-year anniversary a year and a half ago, uh, we announced the starting of a second campus. We call it the East Campus it's on the east side of Tallahassee a very neighborhood kind of focus where it's located. And uh, the church now is um, really gotten serious about things such as sending. We just sent our first full-time IMD missionaries this past year. We just sent our second family two weeks ago. Uh, so it's been really neat to see that really start to shape. So we went for a church just trying to reach some college students because that's all we could do. Uh, to now a multi-generational church really have an impact on local Tallahassee life outside of campus. Uh, that's now really trying to be a sending church and get our folks to understand those type of things as well. So it's been really, it's been really uh, an interesting and quick shift, I guess you could say, to where we are now. Well, Dean, you guys still have a very strong mystiological presence at uh, Florida State and the other college campuses in your area. How do you walk that line between being evangelistic with college students and yet being doctrinally strong and clear and still being culturally appealing? I mean, that's a tough mix for millennials. How do you guys seek to manage that tension? Well, that's a great question. Uh, one thing is we've always married all those three together, but that you can't be faithful about one of those components as a church. Uh, so we believe that Christians, people who claim to follow Jesus, we follow them into the world, that we're probably never more like Jesus than we're around lost people. And that's the, He came to seek and save those who were lost, so if I'm going to follow Christ, I need to be doing the same. But also with what? And with the truth, with the good news of the gospel, with the scriptures that God has given us, if we're not reaching, them, reaching folks with those scriptures, then what are we reaching them to? Right. And then on top of that, no one's going to listen unless we're culturally engaged relationally. Uh, so what's happened in Florida State is a lot of work to build relationships. We have a fantastic relationship with the president of the university. Uh, we have a relationship with a lot of the coaches from different sports. Uh, I could just walk in to some of the facilities right now uh, without any kind of appointment. That's not to boast. That's just to say we're connected there. And uh, it's been a, a lot of our church members are coaches, they're equipment managers, they're athletes. Uh, so we've had a chance really to get on the inside of a lot of the influence at Florida State. And even though we're this like very theologically conservative church that I'm sure is going to cost us one day, I'm not naive in terms of what we believe in a secular environment. But even though we're this theologically conservative church, the university is well aware of what the church has done for students at Florida State, uh, for Greek life, uh, for just so much of the school uh, that they relationally have allowed us in the door. So the way we kind of balance all those things is rather than balancing it, we make it all one and the same. Like we're going to be evangelistically urgent. We're going to actually have something to evangelize with. (laughs) And that's the good news. And also we're going to build relationships because in our culture today, again, I think things such as door to door are great. I love what Moody said. I like my way of doing evangelism better than your way of not doing evangelism. So I'm for all different kind of models and methods. But in our climate in Tallahassee, which is a very liberal town uh, with state government, with universities, Those relationships really matter. So we have to really plow away for a long time and build trust and relationships in order to be able to have the leverage the Lord's given us in terms of uh, gospel relationships. All right. Now, I know none of us want to be critical, but as you look at other churches in your area or around the country that you interact with, what are some places on those areas we just talked about where you see churches falling short or maybe even failing to try? Yeah, I would say that uh, either we see kind of one of two extremes, either churches that are so theologically legit and sound that they're almost in their own echo chamber and they just sort around or they sit around talking about books the entire time, you know, right, and, and right. don't have any any real engagement. Like the people, the staff members don't know lost people. 
Right. Is it, you know, evangelism is a program. It's an event. It's never a lifestyle. Even though I hope it is. I think programs and events are fine, but in the cities they're in, they're not making much traction. Or you see the other extreme where people are, are so in, in this whole idea of being missional that it doesn't have much substance to it. They think missional might just mean hanging out at a coffee shop and people aren't opening their mouths and telling the good news. Or right. they're so pragmatic in their approaches to everything that they stop short at declaring a whole council of God. So we want to avoid both of those extremes. We want to be really serious about theology and really serious about lost people. And to have both those things working together simultaneously because we think that's the way of the scriptures. So churches that are missing the mark, I see them erring on one of those two sides. Well, let's talk about some lessons that you guys have learned at City Church. Two areas we'd like to talk about at Church for the Rest of Us, successes and failures. What are some lessons you've learned from success? And then what are some lessons you've actually learned from failure? From the success side of things, I think that I have to keep myself in check by realizing that we haven't even made a dent percentage-wise into the losses in our town. I don't mean that to be discouraging, but you know, we could have you know 4,500 people show up for our Easter service. Well, there's 300,000 people in Tallahassee. You know, so that just kind of keeps me, I guess, grounded. Yeah, might have might the standard cannot be filling a room. And if filling the room while we got a big crowd is the standard for a successful church, we're never going to reach our communities. So I think through success, it's kind of pointed me towards having to define it properly. And if we define success by filling a room, man, we're doing really well. But if we define success by, hey, like what percentage of our city is actually part of a city church (laughs) campus or a plant or an evangelical sister church, whatever it might be, it changes the game a little bit. So also on the positive side of success, it's allowed us to see what could happen when people really get the local church. When they really get the significance of it, they don't think it disclaimers of, oh, it's all one big capital C church. Oh, no, no, it's about local churches. And it's what can happen when people actually unapologetically get that and commit their lives to it. We've learned a lot of that about success. Uh, Failures-wise, uh, what, what I've come to learn is that it is so easy to beat yourself up all the time. And at this side of heaven, a perfect church does not exist. Uh, so through failures, I've just had to learn that I cannot measure myself in wins and losses. And I cannot measure myself on popularity. And so I can wear a failure for a really long time. So I think through failures, I've had to really kind of, kind of, I guess, where the rubber meets the road. I've had to, for my own self, I've had to kind of go, okay, what do you really believe about this stuff? Like, what do you really believe about the gospel? Like, it's not just true for everybody else. It's true for you, too. And that can be kind of Christian cliche or Christian talking points. But, like, a lot of times those are the truth. <laughs> so yeah. so through, fail- through failures, was had to realize, hey, like, God's evaluated me differently than the church cultural world is. And a lot of what the Christian cultural world calls success and failures, the real world doesn't. So I just had to kind of just plow through that. I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived there yet, but I'm just trying to plow through that. I'm not defined by those things. And that's that's easier said than done. It's a journey for me right now. Well, it's such a good word too, Dean, because a lot of us as pastors are so competitive by nature. Like a lot of us, if we were not pastors, we'd probably be like coaches. And so we don't like, you know, to lose in any arena. We don't like to come in second or third. And so uh, there's some good things about that that help us be more useful for the Lord but then there's some real, you know, in our worst selves or when they're, when we're in the flesh, that can be some some tremendous uh, danger and some tremendous pitfalls for us and for our teams that we're leading. Well, look, we've got a, a listenership at Church for the Rest of Us. It's a lot of pastors and church leaders of churches that are small uh, churches or medium-sized churches. Uh, what are some things that you think a church of any size could begin to do with college students or millennials in their area or in their church? I would say stop making excuses and say we're going to make them a priority. All right. I mean, is, is the next generation a priority or not? You have to answer that question. It's only that's a painful answer, 
And if they are, then how are we showing that? And if they're not, why in the heck? Why in the heck not? And, and I'm, I'm James Merritt told me one time that Dr. James Merritt in the Atlanta area told me that every church is one generation away from dying. Every local church. Now, we know that the actual Church of Jesus Christ is never going to die because he's building his church. But a lot of local churches will <laughs> along the way. And they have and, and they are. Yeah. And they have and they are. And again, our, our motivation for reaching people is not to keep our doors open. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the whole point in that is there's there's always the risk of a missing generation in the kingdom. And I don't want that on my watch in my own little context the Lord has given me. And I hope others are the same way. Uh, so what I, here's what I have to ask myself regularly. Am I pastoring a church that my 25-year-old self would actually want to go to and be a part of? And if the answer to that is no, then I got to figure out why and what changes need to be made. And sometimes it's not radical changes like aesthetics and music. A lot of that stuff can be a little overrated. It's more, are we really intentionally forming relationships and creating places and spaces in our churches and in our just lives, our lifestyles, where this can be a reality? My biggest recommendation is for the pastor himself to figure out ways to invest in younger people. To use his house and his family and dinner time. Uh, so let's say you only have four people who are 25 years old who attend their church, who, who attend your church, and that's reality for some some churches. I would have those four people over to my house for dinner every week, and I would just connect with them and be a support to them, build a relationship with them. Early on, that's what we did. Yeah, it's and called discipleship. Exactly. Great yeah. point. Yeah, yeah, but really focus in on those people, like who you actually want to reach, who's missing. You're going to have four or five of those folks. Guess what's going to happen in a year? They're going to leave and go somewhere else unless you get serious about them. That's just reality. They can only they only love the pastor so much. <laughs> the, the family dynamic that Nana goes here is only going to last for so long. Because eventually Nana's going to die too, right? So I mean, we love Nana, but that's just reality. Mortality rate hundred percent. So I think that. I would just, I think the pastor has to take responsibility in a smaller context uh, for those people because no one else is going to. So you just go, hey, I'm going to, our family, my wife and I, my kids, we're going to know these four, these six 25 year olds better than anyone else in our church. And they're going to, and then we're also, we're going to have some fun, watch some football, joke around, eat some good food. But at the same time, I'm going to push them to be more missional at work and in their graduate school classes. And I'm going to tell them to invite their roommate or whoever it might be over next week to join us in dinner. And it's really prioritize that outside of the work week of nine to five or whatever it might be. I think if pastors really decided to do that, they would see a difference. That's underrated, in my opinion. All right. Just to sum up, Dean, what I'm hearing you saying is a couple of things. One, uh, don't make excuses no matter where you are. It is our task to reach people of every generation, and you must reach younger people or your church will die. Two, the pastor can take responsibility, even if programmatically or uh, in stylistically, you don't feel like you have capacity to reach younger people. The pastor could begin small with just a few. And three, relationships are crucial and key, even more than moving lights and smoke machines. And any church of any size in any town could begin right there where you've laid the program out. Dean, I'm grateful for you being on our program today. But before we sign off, you have a book coming out that's really, really exciting. Tell us about that. Hey, yeah, thank you. It releases March 5th. It's called The Unsaved Christian, and it is on how to reach cultural Christians, uh, which are still a major mission field in America. I think maybe the most underrated mission field in America. And by cultural Christians, I'm talking about mainly people who would claim they believe in God and they're good people. So therefore, they think they're going whatever heaven is in their mind. Uh, they have no definition around it. They think they're going to heaven when they die. They're going to a better place. And the reason is because they're good people and they kind of believe in God. Even in very secular contexts, we still see a lot of this. Uh, every sort of funeral I've ever been to, we've always been told that, that Uncle Jimmy is in a better place, right? Why'd you have to say so, Jimmy? 
Yeah, sorry about that. Uncle Johnny is in a better Thank place. You. So we are, the book looks at, hey, how do I reach these folks? Why don't we diagnose who these people are? It's kind of a, a category that hasn't had a lot of definition, this whole idea of cultural Christianity. And then we make the case for why they need to be reached. And then we do kind of a how-to on, on what it looks like. So I'm really excited about it. I hope it'll be a, a really a blessing to the church and a tool for the church on how to reach these kind of theistic good people who claim to be Christians in our communities but have absolutely no idea of the gospel whatsoever. Kind of like my own story. I'm exci- yeah, I'm excited about that, Dean. Thank you for being with us on Church for the Rest of Us. All of our listeners, be sure to get Dean's book, Unsaved Christian, at Amazon.com. Also, I know I've learned a lot today. We're going to put Dean's contact information in our show notes, including his personal cell phone number, so you can reach out to him. Just kidding. I also I want to thank another one of our conference sponsors, our friends at Lifeway Christian Resources. They provided a very special gift for all conference attendees, so you're going to want to come and find out what that is. Register for the Sharper Conference, March the 7th, sharperconference.com. Look forward to seeing you there. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. I'd love for you to follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Scroggins or check out familychurchnetwork.com to chime in on our blog. We want your feedback on today's podcast. Plus, we want to know what you are doing because we want to learn from you too. Hey, until next time, this is Jimmy Scroggins and you've been listening to Church for the Rest of Us.